Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Max Bax, a proud Cleveland indie bookstore with three floors for browsing, great online service, and chocolate milkshakes right next door. Find your next great read and shop online at maxbacks.com. And we're brought to you by the Ashland University Low Res MFA, where our accomplished faculty help you find your voice and complete your degree at your own pace. Expand your writing practice and refine your craft within the supportive community of Ashland University's Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. Learn more and enroll today at ashland.edu. What's the worst story you could tell about yourself? When I was 20, I cheated on a boyfriend and then lied about it. At age 13, I didn't let my sister sit at my junior high lunch table. She was nervous and alone on the first day of school, and I turned her away. I've often wished for a do-over on that one. More recently, I told my oldest daughter she couldn't get her ears pierced until she turned 16. But then I let her younger sister get her first earrings when she was 11. I once swore like a sailor in front of my best friend's grandma at church. And my husband frequently tells a story in which I forget ever having met him. I've maligned, let down, and wronged plenty of people. Chances are most of us have lists like this, but I'm not sure any of us can even come close to the stories today's guest Lisa Nicolodakis tells in her debut memoir, No One Crosses the Wolf. Lisa details a journey of intergenerational trauma that reminds us that the things we don't deal with now will deal with us later. This book made me hold my breath. And I wanted to meet the writer who lived through so many difficult days and survived to write about them so well. Lisa Nicoladakis holds a PhD in creative writing from Florida State University. Their work has been featured in the Best American Essays and has won a long list of accolades, including most recently the Annie Dillard Prize. Lisa writes both nonfiction and fiction, returning often to themes of trauma, mental health, chronic illness, music, and nature. They also write humor, mostly for survival. Lisa's aim is to help demystify the shame of trauma by continuing to write and speak publicly about it. Their debut memoir, No One Crosses the Wolf, is out now. Lisa Nicoladakis, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you so much for having me. So your recent book, No One Crosses the Wolf, has been described as, quote, a powerful memoir about the traumas of a perilous childhood, a shattering murder-suicide, and a healing journey from escape to survival to recovery. Oh, my God, this (laughs) book... I mean, I was fortunate enough to hear you read from it. And since reading it cover to cover myself, I am flabbergasted, like shaking in my boots by the notion that you carried this around inside of you for as long as you did. I'm breathless about it. The the book obviously is is beautifully written. It's vulnerable. It's it's gorgeous. But I'm also just in shock. I know many of the listeners won't yet be familiar with your work. They won't have had the honor of bearing witness to your truth. So I wonder if we could just back up and have you tell us a little bit of the story of you. 
Yeah, I I I grew up in southern New Jersey, uh, right outside of Philadelphia, where I was born, and my father was, you know, he was from Greece. He'd made his way here to live the American dream, and in our house, it was my mother, my brother, my younger brother, and my father, and my father was a totalitarian dictator of abuse, and I caught the brunt of it. As the oldest child often does, I was really good at provoking him to try to protect other folks. Um, but it was, you know, I grew up with name and abuse. It's, it's probably there. Some of it certainly not even making it to the page in the book. And then when I was 27, he murdered his living girlfriend, her daughter, and committed suicide. And I basically inherited a crime scene. And so, you know, I'd been hobbling through life up until then. I just sort of thought like, well, someone broke me. I am broken, but I can bury that under a river of booze. I'll just, you know, I'll get by somehow. Just keep numbing out. Um, and when, when he did what he did, when he committed those crimes, it just, it was as though every wound I'd ever incurred the scabs just dis disappeared. And it was, I was just open wound from head to toe all over again. And it sent me, um, you know, into a pretty questionable spiral of, of behavior. Although it's always sort of weirdly anchored by my attempting to do what was right for me, which was like, well, I guess I'll go to school even if I'm not functioning, right? And so you have this sort of personality split in two, part of me doing I don't know, trying to make good of my life and the other part of me not even really believing it's worth living, right? And so, yeah, it's a hardcore reckoning. And the first two sections of the book, the book is in three sections. The first two are pretty dark, um, but there's hope, I think, in, in the third section of it, so. Well, absolutely. You take us to Greece, which I, I'm not gonna lie, there were some times when I thought, I'm gonna need to put this down for a minute. I need to, I need to process yeah. and I... I don't understand, truthfully, as I was reading the story of your childhood and your father's death, I came back to trauma writing and how in the world you could write about these personal traumas without being re-traumatized yourself. Well, I wrote a draft that did that. Um, and so, let's see, I finished my PhD in creative writing in English in fall of 2011 and this book of a draft of this book was my dissertation and so i spent the next two years you know trying to get it ready to send out to the world to finish it in a way that you know took in the advice that i'd gotten at school etc and in fall of 2013 so two years later uh, i finished what i thought was a final draft of it and uh, I was married at the time and I, I still drank at the time. And I, I brought, you know, two highballs of scotch into my ex. And I was like, I finished it. And we cheers, have a sip of scotch. And I said, why don't, I should yes. feel better, right? I finished this. Why don't I feel okay? And what I didn't realize was that I had written a version of it 
that traumatized me every step of the way. It was just re-traumatizing. And I hadn't really done intensive trauma work in therapy yet. I, I had a lot of intellectual knowledge about trauma, but I didn't have that. It hadn't yet slid from my brain down to my heart where I, like I, I believed the things that I was supposedly learning through trauma therapy. Um, and yeah, I had a full on breakdown um, and it was, it was ugly. And then I put this book down for three years and worked intensely on learning self-care, which was a word I did not possess when I was working on earlier drafts of this. And so, yeah, I was working on this book like eight and 13 hours a day and just in it, I mean, in it. Um, and I paid a cost. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, if you want to know how not to write a trauma memoir for 17 years, I think I've got, uh, I've got a think piece <laughs> on that brewing. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was pretty brutal. Um, and the plus side, you know, I put the book down for three years and wrote another book that reminded me that I enjoyed writing, which will be one of the next books that I put out. And, and it gave me time away from it to actually feel like I had a decision. Like, do I want to return to this book or do I just leave it? Right. I, I, no one is telling me I have to write this. And yeah, it was, it was a time of real reckoning and real, real healing. Honestly. Yeah, I'm I'm in awe of almost every page here. As a child, you wrote about when the abuse was happening, this feeling of the need to dissociate, to leave your body, to protect yourself from sure. what was happening. That makes total sense to me. And I found myself wondering that when you were writing these chapters and these scenes, revisiting those horrific days, did you also find yourself... Mm wanting to dissociate to to safely write those memories down oh that's interesting um no no i think i'd done enough work at that point i mean okay here's the thing i i genuinely believe that uh, whatever we don't deal with will deal with us absolutely it's coming for us and often more than once which is the i think one of the more difficult lessons of being a survivor of of childhood trauma, which often, you know, lends complex PTSD to its survivors, right? And so you can think that you've stared down your ghost and then a, a small breeze comes in and it shifts you just a, a couple of degrees to the left and you're like, oh, whole new ghost to stare down. And it's just, it, it's, I mean, trauma is circular and cyclical in that way. And so I think you know, healing isn't a destination as much as it is a constant reorientation, right? A constant restabilization. Um, there are places, like the places where I dissociate in the book, they're honest. I come by them honestly. I have nothing there. There, There is no memory there. And I think the bigger fear for me was, am I inviting those memories back by working on this material, right? Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. 
I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. I got into a place where I felt where my curiosity about the book is artifact and my story is a, a creation. My curiosity outweighed my fear. And that was for me the balance that I really I need my fear for so long had had outweighed my curiosity. I wasn't curious about the life I'd survived. I, I was terrified of the life I'd survived. And now for most things, that, that's sort of my guiding light is just like, can we amp up the curiosity around it? Wow. No, I'm, I'm thinking back to specific scenes and pacing and wailing would have to be the only way through those. Absolutely. I mean, it's worth mentioning at this juncture. I, this book took me 17 years to write and I wrote many drafts of it. I wrote one as fiction. That was my master's thesis. I was like, fiction, that's the key. I wondered about that. Right? Like, what happens if I can just make things up and not actually go, you know, erect a tent in the swampland of the soul for two years? Like, let me write it as, oh, and oh, the fictional one. So bad. I mean, chess played a major part in it. Like, I don't know what was happening in that draft. But I, what really wound up happening was I, I needed to tear it down. Um... And that happened while I was in residence at Hedgebrook, uh, an amazing writer's residency. I feel like everybody, everybody awesome I know has been through there. Were you there with awesome people like you? I always wonder. <laughs> I mean, I was there with Mira Jacob, whose work is amazing, amazing, and who is just like an utterly fabulous human being. But I, you know, I mean, yeah, the I'm we're still on the same text thread from 2018. The seven of us who were in <laughs> residence together, like. I think we might be a coven. Like it just it's happened, right? It's my writing coven. I love it. But you know, when I when I got to to Hedgebrook, I'd gone out with this material on proposal. I'd written a proposal and I had sample chapters. And so we were trying to, my agent and I were like, let's see if we can sell it before the book is finished. And I I had so much interest so fast. It was like every day, like 40 editors are reading. Book scouts are talking about you. These people want to rep you for film. Let's send it off. Like, here's the list of famous people now reading your proposal. It was intense. And everyone I knew was like, you're getting an offer. It's happening. You're getting it. Editorial meetings, right? And then I didn't get it. Wow. Yeah, it was crushing at the time. But it was also really pivotal for me. So two things happened. One, it made me consider the question of how I define success. And I realized that the lesson I'd internalized over the years was big five or bust, right? You go with a, if you haven't landed with a big five publisher, what are you even doing? That is utter horseshit. That one is horseshit, right? 
but it was just an unexamined bit of, of doctrine that I'd gotten over the years. And, you know, I remember going to my shelves and looking at the books I most love. None of them were from big fives. I've never been a, a mainstream kid. Like my whole life I've, I've lived in indie. It's like a punk rock goth kid. Like, what am I doing trying to be on the same press as, I was in one of those meetings and I pulled up the other authors and it was like, here's Kevin Hart. And I was like, I don't think this book belongs next to Kevin Hart. No shade to Kevin Hart, Philly, who, <laughs> but. Um, and so, yeah, I had this moment of like retooling what success means and, and, and the damage of any monolithic narrative, right? Success as monolithic narrative. Hell no. There are so many avenues. And that changed my teaching as well. I love to read about yeah. stories that that I find myself in. But I also love to read about stories that I don't think I'll find myself in because yeah. and then and yet I do. Why why do we love to read about why did I love and love is the wrong word, but why was I so seek it out? So drawn to the story. Why do we read memoirs so much? I think that that is, I'll answer that in two ways. The first, we are all imperfect survivors of our own lives. And I think that it is a community making way to make sense of the world that we live in, right? We're just, I think we make, we all do this as, as human beings, we make sense of the world through story and seeing other people fight can inspire, but it can also make us feel less alone. It is a powerful thing to it to see somebody face the page unashamed of their experiences. And I think we carry around so much shame so frequently. Um, so there's something I think in the bravery. I hate the word brave. Hate it. Really? Would never I, I balk at it. I don't I anytime somebody calls me brave, I'm like, nope, uh... we're gonna change that. So I can't believe I just said it. I think it. you're kind of brave. Um, I understand you don't like it, but I think you might be kind of brave. I'll take courageous. Brave Brave implies choice for me. Okay. Which is why, right? Like, brave, you ran into that burning building for the puppies? Brave. Great. I didn't have a choice, right? The second reason, though, and I talk about this in, in my classes pretty frequently. It's a question I like to ask students is, is do we read for a door or a mirror? Right. And so if you've seen your experiences represented on the page over and over again, you get to read for the door. You get to open the door and go on adventure. That's awesome. Um, I think the less you've seen yourself on the page as a result of whatever marginalized space you might occupy, um, as well as some of the darker traumatic stuff that isn't typically on the page, then you might need the mirror. It makes you feel less alone. You get to recognize yourself on the page. And I do think ultimately it's both, right? I'm going to check the mirror before I go through the door. That to me feels like, you know, I, a reader who's done some work on the self, like, yeah, there I am. But this isn't me, but I still connect. And I, I do think that it is a weird thing. I just finished writing an essay about why we are obsessed with true crime. Um, and it's not all that different, right? It, it raises some questions. It's like, why am I reading about the pain of others? But we don't read it for the pain. We read it, I think, um, because how people survive is mind-blowing sometimes. It really is. It's just, 
the resilience and strength that we have as a species is, it's remarkable. And it is something to bear witness to. And I think reading those sorts of books, books where people really do put themselves on the page, you said this at the top, it's a way to bear witness. That's important. Witness is really important. Absolutely. I loved what you said there about we are all imperfect survivors of our own lives. I think a lot of us go to the books for the doors, right? We want to just escape. But you better look in the mirror and figure out what it is you're escaping from. Oh, yeah. Right? And I think escape is easier, right? I'll just ignore it. And it's possible, perhaps, in those early, early drafts of yours, you were running from the very thing you needed to write. Obviously, I haven't seen them, but that doing more doors than windows. I'll tell you what was missing from those earlier drafts. A number of things where none of the sexual abuse was in the book. So it's like, I can tell you what I was running from. There's, there's that. Yeah. And I had, I had done enough work in, on my own with therapists in all sorts of ways where until I really understood that, you know, the shame wasn't mine. It wasn't, still isn't. And that was an incredibly important lesson to not only internalize, but like add to my core beliefs, right? Once that was really settled, it was like, okay, let's go. I know what this book is about. (laughs) Um, It's about the one thing I haven't been writing about for a very long time. Cool. Wow. This, that was not in there. I can understand the desire and the temptation to keep it out, absolutely. But it's it's part of the story. It's fundamental to this version of it, for sure. Yeah. I think one of the simplest things that we do as readers when we learn about a dangerous man in a home is we ask a, a very simple, blamey question, right? We ask, why did the women stay? Why did the woman stay? Your father sexually abused you when you were a child. He pointed a gun at you when you were a teenager. He beat the shit out of your mom on yeah. multiple occasions. So it's an absolute oversimplification and the wrong question, I think, to ask. Yeah. Why did she stay? And you you write very well in the book on a number of occasions. You you say things like, quote, I know why women stay. Yeah. I'd watched one do it the bulk of my childhood. Self-esteem slowly scraped away, financial dependence, and an unceasing belief that maybe, just maybe, he'll change, or worse, that they deserve it. Oh, my God. I, the <laughs> idea that uh, that your mother and and that you felt like you could change him or felt like you deserved it. Um, I can't believe, first off, that that wasn't in the first draft because that's the basis for everything. But I also can believe it wasn't the first, not there, because it's so hard to read about and it's so hard to focus on. But when your dad finally leaves, right, your parents split up. I want to yeah. say you're nearly 16. Yeah. And you also write about that. You say, quote, there's danger in believing you have one central problem, an obstacle that, if removed, will allow happiness to bloom. People think, I'll be happy when I'm thinner, when I'm richer, when I have a better job or partner, but they don't realize it's so much more complex. Even with your dad out of the house, your struggles in some ways just begin anew. Absolutely. That kind of circling back to that idea that whatever we don't deal with will deal with us. 
Yeah, it's worth noting too. Like that's that's the he leaves and Nirvana's Nevermind comes out. Like this is some time ago, right? I'd stolen the copy of the DSM four from a Walden books and and highlighted it. I was like, I'm I'm gonna get to the bottom of this mystery. Points at itself, <laughs> um, and you know, like like any first year psych student, um, I diagnosed myself with everything except PTSD, which is precisely what I had. And here's the thing: I I those memories were locked. Like they, our our brains are incredible at defending us from things that we're not yet prepared to handle. And in order to survive in that atmosphere, I minimized constantly and was gaslit from everyone around me who seemed to act as though it weren't, you know, things weren't that bad. And that's how they survived. And so, you know, that yeah, that opening in the prologue that that I have about the last paragraph about how abuse works in families. In some families, it, it unites them. They become a team fighting an abuser. And I think in so many others, isolation is the key, right? We, our experiences were isolated from one another, even though we were living in a very, not a large house, but we were living incredibly different lives in there. And I think each of us was just doing what we could to survive. That's really it. Like, it is difficult to see and to understand clearly what is happening when you're being isolated, played off against one another, lied to, manipulated by somebody who's really good at manipulation, threatened, coerced. I mean, and your brain is still cooking, right? Like, my poor little tiny brain was still cooking. So my neural pathways were, I mean, I've been saying... I've taken to recently calling myself um, an electrician of my own brain, right? Because I'm, my work is rewiring this and how lovely that the brain is just made of plasticity, right? But some of those old neural pathways, they are entrenched and that's the work of working on trauma, right? Let me examine these false links that have occurred. If then, then, you know, if this, then that, right? Which I'll say that in a more concrete way. So I think it, I'll give you an example. Imagine you are driving over a bridge and have a panic attack. Your brain will say, bridges, give us panic attacks and forever link those, boom, neural pathway created. And then you start doing things like avoiding bridges or as you approach a bridge, your heart rate starts to speed up. You might sweat a little and you're like, oh no, we're in danger, but it's a false link. The anxiety attack had nothing to do with the bridge. It just happened to be on the bridge. And so a life lived with a, with a chronic abuser is a bit like that in that you're just constantly making false links, right? Well, I wore the pink pants today and he yelled at me about this. And it's like, well, we can't wear pink pants anymore. Well, that's obviously pink pants aren't the problem, but I'm a grown ass woman who knows that now. Did eight-year-old Lisa know that? No. She's just trying to do what she can to minimize damage across the board. Do people ask you if this is a book about forgiveness? I do get asked quite a bit about forgiveness. I love what you said about it, that uh, no one automatically deserves forgiveness, not because Hell of their no. blood or some allegiance to duty or propriety. The notion of forgiveness is something you give away is insidious. Yeah. I was glad that you answered that, though, because I was going to be angry 
at everyone <laughs> asking. And so like wanting to tie it up in a bow. Yeah. I've, I've read some of your other things besides this. And one of my, one of my favorites is actually very recent, um, which I'll ask you about, about the whales oh, and yeah. the notion, the desire to diagnose, right? Label something as this is what it is. And then therefore we can tie it up in a bow and right. so much of health and illness and wellness can't be can't be tied up no no it's murky yeah i get asked about forgiveness a lot and i this line is somewhere i don't know if it's in that book or another essay but i i spent my 20s twirling that word like a flaming baton like i was obsessed with forgiveness i read everything i could on the subject i mean i was still doing that into my 30s I've stopped wrestling with it because it doesn't matter. Have I arrived at forgiveness? I don't know. Here's what I know. I've released a lot of the energy that used to go to understanding this story or understanding what it all means, what like needing to diagnose, needing to have these beautiful little boxes that I could like use a label maker and just be like, and this is trauma exhibit Q, right? That's it. I know it doesn't work that way. And so I think instead of considering forgiveness, what I think about more often is energy and intention. Where do I intentionally focus my energy? Do I sit here and stew about things that happened 30 years ago? Sure, it catches up with me occasionally, but I try to reroute that energy back into honestly, self-love. And it's just, it's, you know, reparenting the child, right? It's that work because my needs weren't met when I was a kid. Basic needs, safety, right? Like, and so, yeah, I, I just think more about like, where am I going to put my energy? And I've become much more conscious of where it goes. It definitely does not go much to my father. It did, I wrote this book. I will now talk about him for a very long time. Um, but it's not about him. It's just not. Like somebody much smarter than me, not sure who, wrote that memoir isn't, it isn't the story of what happened to you. It's the story of how you survived it, right? When you're living with a chronic abuser, you are not the main character in your own story. You've become secondary or tertiary because they are a spotlight hog. I mean, he was, that's who my father was. And so, yeah, I get to be the main character now and like check in with myself, see how I'm feeling, what I might need, which often is just more coffee and a <laughs> snack. <laughs> or a trip to Greece. I think that's why the, I'm not giving anything away here by saying that the third part, that the, the book is divided into these three parts, that third part with Greece is so beautifully jubilant. Yes, you are still um, piecing through trauma, but uh, that that part of the book was was such a gorgeous gift to us as readers and to you and to your whole family because your relationship with your Greek father was horrific and you spent most of your adult life avoiding and eschewing anything Greek. Yeah. But these chapters about finally visiting that country we're so magical from the image of you weeping and you make fun of yourself, but it's also very true, like weeping at the base of the Parthenon and being yeah. welcomed by a village full of yeah. Nikolodakis family. Like that, yeah. that I could, as a reader, I could practically taste 
the lemon, the olive oil, and the oregano dripping off of your fingers. And I was just, I was so grateful for that beautiful homecoming to a place you'd never known. That word, um, thavma or tavma, thavma. a miracle. Yeah. So will, will you gush a little for me about about Greece? Oh, sure. Um, I think it's still sort of amazing that I ever came back. Uh, <laughs> I genuinely thought about, I mean, I remember being in Greece and thinking, I have my laptop. I don't need anything in my apartment. Like, it's just stuff. I get very, it's just stuff. Like, that is sort of where I live, where I'm like, do I have my passport and my laptop? I'm fine. The only reason I came back to the States was because I was in the midst of doing my PhD. And I was like, you're going to regret not finishing that. Do that. But I was like, I was, yeah, I was ready to go. Everything I knew from Greece was either, you know, taught from Greek at Greek school, which I went to for six interminable years, <laughs> um, and was essentially propaganda. Um, and then... The rest of it came from my father. Because I rejected him at such a young age, uh, I'd really, I'd had no interest in going to Greece. And I think fundamentally, I thought that was part of what was wrong with him. That line always gets a laugh when I read. I'm like, but like, it wasn't funny to kid me. I was like, this is what's wrong, right? Because what we do as children is, you know, survey our surroundings to see the ways that we are different. And then we assume that that's why, right? Because kids are master assimilationists. That moment before I go to Greece, when I am just drowning my sorrows in a bottle of Jameson, too scared to, you know, press purchase now on the ticket, I think that was really the first time. It's one of the first times, at least, but it might be the first time where, and I couldn't have articulated this then, I realized that fear and curiosity are opposites, which I'm writing an essay about now. I genuinely believe this. My curiosity about something out there outweighed my fear of anything that could go wrong in a country I'd never been to that I had really no plan for whatsoever. I mean, I, and I had unchecked, my anxiety wasn't under control then. I had panic attacks all the time. I, you know, I mean, I was just, I was living in fear, which is what happens when your fight or flight never shuts off. Um, but yeah, getting to Greece, that it is it is a space of magic for me. But yeah, I wasn't expecting what happened in Greece. And I honestly I think that was the first time when my curiosity outweighed my fear, what also happened was parts of me that had been closed off for a really long time opened. Like I went into Greece more open-hearted. And I think traveling abroad does that to many of us. We find ourselves striking up conversations with strangers in ways that we might not, at, you know, at home at our local, you know, cafe. I went in more open hearted than I had been in some time. And I, I mean, I left there with like heart on my sleeve. I just it was magical. And Lord, the food is good. Ugh, the food. So good. I also love that every man you met in Greece was like a philosopher. You are here because you are asking questions of the universe. They all are. <laughs> I stand by it. I stand by it. It's not, I think it's not just the men. Everyone in Greece is a philosopher. I realize the danger of a broad blanket statement. <laughs> I so my my experience, empirical and at limited sample size as my data is, bears that out. Yes. Every person was just like, visualize your future. And I'm like, okay, Stavros, 
I'll get right on that. You've missed six buttons on your shirt, but cool. <laughs> I'll get on that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Hey, beyond this book, who are some of your uh, writer crushes? Whose work do you just love? Oh, Lydia Yuknovich. Right. I just like I, my laptop from which we are doing this right now is being propped up by Thrust, her newest novel. And um, I just met a bunch of new writer crushes because I was in residence at Ashland. Woo-hoo. And I got everybody's books at that Ashland MFA program. And so I'd already known, you know, Therese Mailhut's book, Heart Berries, is like one of my favorite memoirs of all time. But I've got, you know, Naomi Munawira's novel as well. So I think I'm going in a fiction reading jag. I'm also reading uh, Barry Lopez's Arctic. I'm reading Gathering Moss. Like, I do a lot of science and nature reading and, and some writing in that area. And I think that that is closer to where I'm headed. And so Lisa Feldman Barrett's How Emotions Are Made is a book I forever revisit. So, yeah, I, I split my time, I think between a lot of science and nature writing and then everything really. I mean, poetry, fiction, and nonfiction, I read across genres. Excellent. I'll make sure to link to some of the books you recommended at the, at the show notes. And of course, to your own, your own writing. Um, I always wrap with with a few, um, I don't know, I'd call them icebreakers, but you do them at the end. Just a few, you know, multiple choice and just get to know you beyond the writing that we we were talking sure. about. So you know, just pick one. So um, coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Beach. Horses or whales? Horses. Wait, I didn't even hear what came next. <laughs> I know. Horses or whales? Oh, horse whales, obviously. <laughs> yes, you could say both. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. And this is a fill in the blank. If I wasn't working as a writer, I would be a... I think the thing that I don't do professionally that I would have been very happy to do um, is entomology. I'm such a natural scientist. Like I'm a naturalist in in the world, but God, I love insects. Yeah, I was picturing you barefoot in mud or trees. Yeah, I was going with naturalist. That makes sense to me. And also for mountains or beach, like I really prefer both. Beach mountains where it's at, (laughs) but the, the ocean is where I go when I am, I'm not meant to be in the middle. Like I am a coastal bird um, and I go to the beach when my head is stuffy. Gotcha. Uh, This is another multiple choice. Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are? (laughs) Neither. I think I'm just like, I might be the loose toddler. Genuine, which might make me the risk taker, but I'm not aware of it. I'm just like, what's that giant bird? And then I follow it. (laughs) <laughs> and then it's like, oh, do I have Band-Aids in the car? I mean, I have like, I have turtle gloves in my car so that when I see turtles, I can move them off the road. Like there might be a first aid kit in there. <laughs> I have turtle gloves in my car. It's my everyone... new favorite sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to touch them with my hands. It seems reasonable to me. But yeah. I like this. My next question was going to be, what's something quirky that folks don't know about you? But I mean, you can answer that, but I think it's that you have turtle gloves in your car, but. uh. I'll tell you another quirky thing, which is I am 
uh, following and taking notes. I'm stalking, essentially, these birds. <laughs> They're roseate spoonbills. I had never seen a roseate spoonbill. They're pink. Their mouth is basically, their, their bill is basically a spork. It's just <laughs> a pink dinosaur. I don't know why they're still in existence. Like basic Darwinism says, don't be pink, I think. And yeah, I just kind of keep stalking them and like taking field notes. No one's asked me to, but if anyone has questions about, you know, the migration and mating habits of the roseate spoonbills in <laughs> whatever part of Southwest Texas, uh, I got you. <laughs> Most people pitch the story first and then they stalk the bird, but you're no, doing it in reverse order. I don't actually, I mean, I don't ever have to write about that. That's just like, that's a Tuesday for me. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I gotta go check on these birds that no one's asked me to check on and see what's happening. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, what's one of your go-to songs? A song that brings you joy or or you can cry to? It's a go-to song. Really depends on, yeah, it depends on what I'm trying to elicit, right? Um, it changes for me all the time. Like, what kind of song are you looking for? Some people will be like, this is the song that revs me up. And other people are like, this is the song that always all makes right. me cry. I'm going or... to tell you an embarrassing hype song because it is genuinely related to this this book. Oh man, do I want to say this? I'm saying it. I'm saying it. There's no embarrassment here. Frank Stallone's Far From Over is my pump up <laughs> jam. Like, because it's far from, like if I'm like tired and I'm trying to push through to like finish a chapter and it's, it doesn't, that's on three times in a row. Mm -mm. Now, because I've just listed such a terrible song, I would like to follow it with a good one. So that people understand that I am a woman of musical and you know, discerning musical taste. Um, Curtis Mayfield's Move On Up All right. is another hype song. They're on the same playlist, though. So, like, it's really gotten out of hand. I'm not sure those are usually on the same playlist, but no. we're going to allow it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I think I'm writing about the Frank Stallone song soon. So um, that is that might be happening. Nice. All right. Last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? Oh, I would 100 percent be barefoot in nature, um, probably bent over a series of plants and or animals studying them, which or there's a picture somebody snapped of me. It's way back on my Instagram, but I'm literally just talking to three horses I didn't know anyone was watching me. And I can tell you in that moment, I was lecturing Maverick, the horse, um, about the patriarchy. Like that's what I was doing that day. And I, it is to this day, one of the most on-brand photos of me I've ever seen, where I was like, yeah, that, that's me. Just out in nature, collecting stones and leaves and feathers and whatever. I'm just a weird gatherer. My, my apartment is like a natural history museum, essentially. There's a lot of specimens. So I love this. I'm going to yeah. picture you lecturing horses about the patriarchy. You patriarchy. can, I mean, look on my Insta. You can find that photo. I'm just like mid-sentence, mouth open, arms like in, I, I look enraged. I'm talking to horses where I'm like, how do you guys not see this? This <laughs> patriarchal hierarchy that's working here. Math, why are you always at the top? Like, I'm just, that's me talking oh, to horses. Oh, my gosh. Lisa Nicolidakis, thank you for sharing these 
quirks and delights. And also thank you for trusting us with your truth in this book. Oh, of course. Thank you for inviting me. This is really good work that you're doing. Yeah, it's really good work that you're doing. You've written, I think in one of your biographies, it talks about you. um, One of the aims of your writing is to help demystify the shame of trauma by continuing to write and speak publicly about it. I know I, for one, am grateful for this work. And I know that most of us with that in our past, you know, come to you with vulnerability we're afraid to share. And we open the book and we we feel, I'm going to use your word, courageous and also maybe brave because you helped us with that so thank you well thank you truly and i hope i hope you find some peace and sanctuary now that the story is moved through you and outside of you mm. and i think the birds and the horses surely will help oh they always do definitely hey for folks who are listening you can pick up lisa's memoir no one crosses the wolf at an indie store near you And to everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube. And audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.